Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. I remember I was probably in about eighth grade, and my mom woke me up out of a, a dead sleep, shaking me. David, get up. And at first I was a little worried, but then she was almost happy, excited in a way. And she insisted that I come out to the living room, and she had the TV on, and she sat me down in front of the TV, which was weird. And she put both of her hands on either of my shoulders, and she said, David, someday years from now, you will have a grandchild on your lap, and you will be able to tell them you saw the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I didn't understand it at the time, but there was people dancing on this cement barrier, taking sledgehammers to it, all this crazy stuff. And and not fully understanding then, but as I got older and learned more of history, the joy and the power, after decades of war, both both real war and cold war and everything that went with it, what, what was involved in the tearing down of that wall? Of course, we face a moment where we don't understand where history is going. Are we going back to that? War again is upon us. But history helps us understand the present and the future. And so it's with the same kind of intensity that my mom had. I I wish that I could put my hands on each of your shoulders and look you in the eye and say, this is the history of God's movement towards a new city. It begins in the book of Acts. This is the story of our people and the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, preparing us and calling us and leading us to what He has for us. I don't understand or fully know the politics of this world or what's ahead of us in that. But I do know that God is revealing a new city. Amen? And we get to be a part of that. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Let's turn there. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Guess what? It's a sequel. (laughs) Right? Now, that might be a little disorienting, but we've had enough of the prequel, sequels, whatever kind of quills in movies that we should be able to wrap our mind around this. But this is part two of Luke and Acts. And uh, I'm going to actually have us watch two and a half minutes of a Bible Project video. The Bible Project is a a, a great uh, ministry that has put out a number of videos that help us understand the Bible from, from, a, from a bird's eye view. That's exactly what we're doing. And we're not going to watch either part or all of the Bible Project videos for each of the books that we're going through in this series, but I would encourage you to do that. We have them printed in your book. You can find them online. It's very easy to access them. And I would encourage you, especially if you're in a small group, watch them before your small group. Watch them before the sermon. Kind of get this overview And so just kind of show you what they're like. We're going to watch two and a half minutes of the Bible Project video on Acts Part 1. Let's take a look. The book of Acts 
It's the second volume of a unified two-part work that today we call Luke-Acts. These were written by the same author, Luke, who was a traveling co-worker with Paul. This is clear from the book's introduction, where Luke says, I produced my first volume, that's the gospel, about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now Luke's giving a clue here as to what this book of Acts will be about. Volume 1 was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Volume 2 will then be about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Which leads to a really interesting point about the book's traditional, but not original name, the Acts of the Apostles. While different apostles do appear in most of these stories, the only single character who unifies the whole story from beginning to end is Jesus himself, acting directly or through the Spirit. And so the book would more accurately be named the Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. The book's introduction recounts how the risen Jesus spent some 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This connects back to the story of Luke's gospel, where Jesus claimed that he was restoring God's kingdom over the world, beginning with Israel. So he called Israel to live under God's reign by following him. And he was enthroned as king when he gave up his life and then conquered death with his love. And so the book of Acts begins with the risen King Jesus instructing his disciples about life in his kingdom. So he promises that the Spirit will soon come and immerse them in his personal presence. And this fulfills one of the key hopes from the Old Testament prophets, that in the Messianic kingdom, God's presence, his Spirit, would come and take up residence among his people in a new temple and transform their hearts. And so Jesus says, when this happens, the Spirit will empower his disciples to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. From here, Jesus is taken up from their sight in a cloud. It's an image drawn from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It shows how Jesus is now being enthroned as the Son of Man, who was vindicated after his suffering, and now shares in God's rule over the world. And so he promises that he will return one day. And so the main themes and the design of the book of Acts flow right out of this opening chapter. This is a story about Jesus leading his people by the Spirit to go out into the world and invite all nations to live under his reign. And so the story will begin with that message spreading in Jerusalem and then into the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria full of non-Jewish people, and then from there out to all of the nations into the ends of the earth. There's more. You can watch that on your own. But we're going to be covering Acts in three weeks. And this week, we're going to be covering Acts 1 through 12 and looking at Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. Next week, we have a special guest, Pastor Danny Parmley, our founding and former lead pastor, is going to be joining. He's currently overseeing all church planning for Converge Mid-America. He's going to be coming and talking about the second part of the book of Acts and church planning and uh, a lot of exciting stuff there. You don't want to miss that. And then we're going to come back and look at what does it look like for us to live on mission, to, to continue what God started here in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, I had, if you're already there, pick it up in verse 6. If you're a note taker, I'm just kind of walking through chapter 1, then 2 through 7, 8 through 12. And, and the first point is Jesus is king of the world. Jesus is king of the world. Verse 6 so, they just spent 40 days having Jesus kind of teach them about the kingdom and everything that we just heard. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
This is one of the central questions of, of Scripture. This is what's happening all, all the way from the beginning of the promise to Abraham. This is what, what the people of God are longing for when they live in exile and they're waiting for the return of the king. When the Messiah comes, they expect him to be a military king, right? To restore the kingdom. But then Jesus goes to the cross. But then he rises from the dead. And they're like, this is the moment, right? This is the moment where the kingdom comes and, and everything is perfect and you all these... Uh, prophecies of the old testament are fulfilled and this is jesus's response it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority and then he explains our role in this kingdom process but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the disciples are asking Jesus, is this the moment where the kingdom comes in its fullness? Because they're seeing the start of it. And his answer is, you don't know the time, but here's what is going to happen. It's what he was teaching them even when we were going through the book of John, right? He is the helper with us. He is God's presence with us. He is going to go away. He's going to send the Spirit. All of that he's reiterating here. And he says, go wait and the Spirit will come upon you. And then you, the context is the kingdom question. And the answer is you will be part of this kingdom expanding process as we announce that Jesus is king of the world. By the way, we'll pick this up, but announcing that Jesus is king of the world is kind of a big deal to the Roman emperor who is pretty adamant that he is the king of the world, right? And so we'll see how that plays out. But Acts is history, right? Acts is history. It is descriptive and not prescriptive, okay? And this is important. We'll pick this up in a little bit, but Acts is not meant to lay out a... a, a cookie-cutter model of what every church needs to look like. It's describing how God worked in these first moments of the disciples receiving the Spirit and the, the gospel going forward. Luke was a physician, a medical doctor, if you will. Uh, he is very focused on eyewitness accounts, both in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts. And what's interesting about the book of Acts is, is partway through the book, he starts saying, we. And so Luke is not just recording these events. At some point, he becomes part of the events. And if you look in the back of your study guide, we kind of list where books were written. And, and Acts has to be kind of chunked up because he's writing it along the way. And so Luke is a keen observer, and he's part of these events. It's written probably in the early 60s AD, um, kind of 60 to 64 maybe. And it's definitely happening before the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus is king of the world. That's Acts chapter 1. Second thing, Jerusalem and the temple, just kind of as a category that we're going to look at, and that's Acts chapter 2 all the way through the end of 7. Let's take a look at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Powerful account of Pentecost. If you've never heard this part of the Bible, you're going, I have some questions, as followers of Christ have since the beginning, right? Now, what's important is that we understand the biblical context of Pentecost. Context is important, right? Just by way of example, uh, I, I was teaching a workshop for youth pastors right after I got married. My wife and I, we were high school sweethearts. We got married at 20 and 19, and I wouldn't change that for the world uh, we, we love that, that God led us to get married young. Um, but the thing about me is that I was shaving every day at 14. Uh, I, I didn't buy beer, but I could have bought beer, okay? Uh, I have always looked older. When I turned 30, I had people who had known me well who thought I was turning 40, okay? My wife, on the other hand, has always looked youthful. Even though there's 18 months between us, people have often assumed there are years, Okay? And so during the lunch break at this youth pastor's conference, I'm out in the parking lot, and I just, my, my bride comes, and she, I think she brought me lunch or something, or just was there, and I gave her this huge kiss. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw one of these other youth pastors give me the stink eye. Because they had jumped at some conclusions about what was happening. What is that guy doing? And so I made a point when we started the session after lunch, of bringing my wife in and introducing her. <laughs> this is my wife, right? This is the context that was needed. And so allow me to kind of, in the same way, introduce you to some parts of the Old Testament. Allow me to introduce you to the, this context from the Old Testament so that you and I don't jump to conclusions about what's happening in the book of Acts. First of all, there's this whole thing playing out in this part of the book of Acts about the temple. And this is one of the first clues because this, all this reference to wind and fire, to a student of the Old Testament, they immediately remember these accounts of when God's presence, when his spirit would fill the physical temple in Jerusalem, it was always accompanied by wind and fire. A manifestation of the glory of God. This is reminiscent of the temple being filled, right? And so what's happening here is immediately there's kind of this link to this temple language. The other thing that Luke is careful to point out is that part of what God is doing is reversing the curse. And we know this generally with Jesus, right? That he, he died and he rose again to reverse the curse of sin on our life. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve partake of, 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 they commit sin, they rebel against God, they partake of the fruit in the garden, right? And there's a curse, and, and the big kind of story of Jesus is he's rolling back that curse. He's making a way for us to be right with God. But there's another curse, specifically as it talks about all these nations, and that's part of what Acts, the beginning of Acts, is about. There's a curse on the nations, and it leads to the blessing and the promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. So there's another curse in Genesis 3. What is it? Tower of Babel, where there's one language... And then there's the arrogance of man that rises up. We will be like God. And then God curses them, and their language is what? Split. And there's confusion. 
And it's part of the curse on the nations that the promise to Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so Jesus is reversing the curse of Babel, which is what is happening. You literally have the, many, the, the one tongue going out to many tongues at Babel. And then at Pentecost, you have the many tongues kind of coming back into one. And it's reversing that curse of Genesis 11. Now, I want to notice, we're going to talk more about this when we get to 1 Corinthians. Some of us were raised in a tradition uh, that took this very literally and said, hey, when you trust Christ, there's going to be a moment where you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's true. And then this will happen. And that's not true. Okay? So we're going to unpack that in fullness, but we have to understand the context of what this is linking to in the Old Testament and, and what this is trying to say about the, the kingdom of God advancing. There's one more confusion in Acts chapter 2. Uh, jump down to verse 42. So this happens. Peter preaches at Pentecost. This beautiful sermon, verse 41, says, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thousands of people respond to the sermon. The church grows by thousands overnight, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, to, uh, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We're going to see this growth and this multiplication, this advancing of the kingdom of God all throughout the book of Acts. But what's happening here is, again, this link, this language is describing from Deuteronomy's, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 14 how the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem, was meant to function. So all of the language about this, about we would come and we would uh, bring our surplus and out of the, the temple storehouse, the needs of those who did not have would be met. And so it's this picture, again, tying back to the temple. Because understand that the temple is the center of worship in the Old Testament. And so there's this connection. The Old and New Testament are not separate. There's, they're very much context and connected. But God is doing something new. And the temple was the center of worship in the Old Testament. And now the center of worship is what? His new covenant people. Those of us who are part of this Jesus community, the church, if you will, and the Spirit of God is not inhabiting the physical temple, it's inhabiting us. The work of the temple is not administrated by the priests, it's now part of what we're called to do, right? And these signs and, and what's happening is to authenticate that and show that. Now, because of that uh, lack of context, here's two things that happen. Is sometimes, like I was saying, churches assume that tongues are going to just be part of, of what happens. But notice that the Bible, when it says the word tongues, is one person speaking here in a known language and someone else hearing in their known language so that they can trust Christ. Okay? And that's important to know. When the Bible uses this word tongues, it's describing this phenomenon. It's about known languages. 
Now, sometimes we take this step and, and we say, hey, we're just going to talk in kind of this prayer language or this angelic language. That's not what Acts is talking about, and we'll cover that fully when we get to 1 Corinthians. By the way, if you're coming from a background that has taught uh, something else about this, you're going to have questions, right? Talk to your campus pastor this week. We're in small groups. Start asking those questions, right? But it's important to understand the context of Acts because there's one more confusion, right? It's this communal living. And for hundreds of years, Christians have said, hey, Acts is prescriptive. This is exactly how the church should function right here and now. So what do we do? Hey, we're going to get our church together. Everybody's going to sell everything they have. We're going to go buy some farmland somewhere in the country, and we're going to have a commune, right? Sometimes people just buy a house, and they have communal living. Now, I'm not saying that communal living is bad, but it's not what's prescribed to the church, right? But there are movements, the Amish movement, the Mennonite movement, right? Throughout history, there have been all sorts of movements and groups that have said, we're going to do exactly what Acts chapter 2 says, and this is how it, it plays out. Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive, and we have to understand what it's saying. Then the last thing that happens, turn to uh, Acts 6, verse 7. By the way, we're covering ground. I can only talk so fast, so... You know, we're just going to flip some pages. Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So there's this other summary statement, this growth of the church. And then Stephen is confronted. Why? Because he's speaking against the temple. That's what he's accused of. The first follower of Jesus who is murdered for their faith is murdered in context of this temple conversation. Stephen is confronted. He gives this long, beautiful speech. I'd encourage you to read it this week if you haven't read it yet. And it kind of culminates in in chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they had heard these things, those who were accusing Stephen, they were enraged And they ground their teeth at him. Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They threw stones at him, large and small stones, until he died and was crushed. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We're going to hear more about his story later in the book of Acts. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. And so there is the continuation of the persecution that was against Jesus comes here fully to the first martyr, the first murder of a Jesus follower, But even in the midst of this, God is accomplishing his purpose. Something significant happens here. All the believers were in Jerusalem. They were content to be in Jerusalem. They they had this pattern. They were meeting in the temple and then in homes, and things were growing. Everything was going well. But at the beginning of the book of Acts, we heard God's plan, that it would go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so something happens. Verse 4 of chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. What happens is God uses this persecution to scatter the church 
and spread the gospel in a phenomenal way. And the reality is that God uses persecution throughout church history. And that God is present in accomplishing his purpose even in the midst of war. Even in the midst of persecution. Even in the midst of the most difficult things that you and I face. That God is not just a God of redemption. Though he is a God of redemption. He takes and, and takes something broken and redeems it and buys it back and repairs it. But God is also a God of purpose. So, sometimes we misunderstand this and we think that, you know, when bad things happen to us, God is just the eternal optimist and he's like, life hands you lemons, let's make some lemonade, right? That God is just like, you know, we'll, we'll kind of fix this problem, don't worry. But I want you to understand, and this is important, that God's purposes... God's purposes towards you are blessing. God's purposes towards you are, are honor. God's purposes towards you are goodness. And I think that at least part of this has Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 in mind. It's the whole account of the book of Joseph that the people of God would have known well. At the very end of the story of Joseph, right? His brothers have been betrayed him, sold him into slavery. He's been betrayed multiple times, up and down, finally rises to prominence all by the hand of God. And verse 20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you meant for evil, and then we hear, God worked together for good. Correct? No. It says, what you meant for evil, God what? Meant for good. God is a God of purpose, not accident. God's intention towards you matters. God's intention towards us matters, especially in times of persecution, especially in times of war, especially in times of heartache or trouble or death or loss. And as we hold tightly to this world, it doesn't feel good. And Scripture reminds us of God's ultimate purpose. And we cannot understand His purpose and His work in our individual lives until we understand His overarching purpose for His people and the world. And that's why we're in this series, Revealing a New City, because it is not just what God is doing in this world, it is what God is preparing for us. And last week we talked about how this world will be shaken and what is left is unshakable, and that we need eyes of faith to understand this. Just like today in Ukraine, it is a time of war. But understand, it is, a not, it is not a war between you and evil but between God and evil. Evil's purpose towards us is that. It's evil. It's destruction. And God's purpose towards us is salvation and goodness and blessing. And it is not our purpose, right? That we're, we're fighting against evil ourselves. We are wrapped up in God's purpose in God's plan. The bigger issue decides the smaller issue, and as we understand God's purpose in an overarching way, we can understand our purpose in a specific way. Jerusalem and the temple. 
Then we get to Judea and Samaria. Acts 8 through 12. Philip proclaims Christ in Samaria. Right? There, there's, there's some craziness going on there. Jesus went to Samaria and the disciples were like, why are you going there? There's, there's tension. There's racial and ethnic tension there. But that's where the gospel goes because of this persecution. And many believe. There's also an aspect of joy that accompanies the, the messianic message. Saul then meets Jesus in chapter 9. That's the Damascus Road experience. We'll probably talk more about uh, Saul and his conversion and becoming Paul as we look at his letters. Then there's Peter and Cornelius, uh, where this, the, the message goes out beyond just the Jewish believers to the Gentile believers. Chapter 10, verse 44 through 48. Let's take a look at that. So Peter receives this vision that all food is clean. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jewish people who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. Again, this is part of that. The root is the Old Testament, the promises of the Messiah, the people of God, and everything that he's been doing. But God is doing something new. Now you might say, I don't really care about Cornelius. Well, you do if you like bacon. Because part of this is, is why when you start, when you do the Bible reading plan and you're reading and you read all these food laws, like, uh-oh, i got to really change my diet here. Well, according to the whole experience with Cornelius is the, that God's affirming, hey, here's what I'm doing. Here's the new things that I'm doing, right? And then Acts 15, there's this whole council and all that God does that. That matters to us because you and I, there might be a, a handful of us who are ethnically Jewish, but for the vast majority of us, we are Gentiles. This is our moment where we're included in the family of God, and God makes that clear. This is an important moment for us who are in Christ to see, and, and there's this thing where it goes beyond uh, just what God was doing among the Jewish people, and then it leads to the church in Antioch, chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word uh, and it, to no one except the Jews, and then it kind of talks about how they do it, and it expands. Barnabas, verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, because when Saul got converted, none of the Christians wanted to believe that the guy who was just murdering them was now a Christian. So he kind of like made an appearance, and then he went to Tarsus. Barnabas goes, gets him. When they had found him, he brought him back to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's where we get our name. Now, in these days, and he kind of talks about it, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Somebody prophesies a famine. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And this is like a little like throwaway verse, right? Oh, they, Barnabas and Saul are going to go. But this spurs the whole ministry of the Apostle Paul going out, planting these churches, his three missionary journeys. And as you read through the, the epistles that Paul is writing, he's talking about this offering that he's receiving, right? We've looked at those verses like when we went through 2 Corinthians. 
This is kind of where that whole thing starts, and Paul is sent off, and the gospel and the kingdom of God advance in tremendous ways around the known world. The history is important because it both reinforces the connection between the Old Testament and New Testament, but also clarifies very important things like food laws and customs, culture, how the Jews and Gentiles are to relate. But all of this is in context of the power of the gospel to change our lives and what happens when the Holy Spirit fills us and calls us into ministry. Because don't walk away from the book of Acts, and we'll talk about this more in week three. There's no longer this tiered system where there's priests and everyone else. We are a nation of priests. We are all called to ministry. We are all part of the kingdom-advancing work of Jesus Christ. And that as we believe in Jesus, he calls us to be part of this. And it's a privilege and a joy. And as we understand what God is doing in the big picture, then we understand what he has called us to do in our daily lives. Amen? Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. All this interesting stuff happens, and now the gospel is going forth. Let's pray. Lord, you're good. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we engage with it and read it and let it wash over us, God, that you would work in our hearts, that you would stir up how we are part of this kingdom advancing in this world that we're in. God, we specifically pray in unity for our brothers and sisters who are in Ukraine or fleeing Ukraine, that you would meet them, that you would protect them. But God, work according to your purpose even in this moment. You are king of the world and none other. And our allegiance is to you. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let us be a part of it this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.